This morning's sermon text is Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Have you ever thought about how unique Christianity is just based on the sheer amount of music that has been written? Other religions do not write songs or sing in the same way that Christians do. You, you don't see this in the Muslim faith or Hindus or Buddhists. It's just not the primary means of praising their gods. But that's not true of Christians or, or of Jewish people for that matter. We, we've always been a people who... Uh, remind ourselves of what God has done or about who God is through song. Of course, the book of Psalms is a collection of these songs, different songs, different types that help us know about God and how to praise him rightly. So even within the book of Psalms, there's a lot of different types of Psalms. There's Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of lament, handful of others. And today in Psalm 47, we'll see what's called an enthronement Psalm. So there's a handful of enthronement psalms. There's not a lot of them, uh, but there's one sort of unifying theme all of the enthronement psalms have. And the, the theme is Yahweh reigns. The Lord reigns. He is seated on his throne. And then they all kind of give us a, a two-point structure. There's a call to worship and there's causes for worship. And it's just like the psalm that Tom opened with and Psalm 47 is no different we see that there is, that's the outline that we'll take up today as we go through the sermon, the call to worship and then the causes for worship, for praise. So we'll see that first in the call to praise. We are to praise God with joy. So, so just trying to think generally speaking about what it means to praise God, I think it's probably helpful for us just to define the word. Uh, so Oxford dis- defines praise as expressing warm approval of a person or a thing. So biblically, there's a lot of different words in the Hebrew and in the Greek that kind of get at the idea of praise from different angles. And so you've got uh, words that talk about uh, praising God means shouting praises loudly. Some of them mean to, to kind of brag on or, or raise up a number of accolades about what God has done. Most particularly in Psalm 47, the word is uh, that carries the idea of singing God's praises specifically with instruments, with, with stringed instruments involved. See, I wonder when we think about praise, if we think about it as broadly as the Bible does. I think often it's easy for us to think of praise as the part of the service where we sing. But the Bible defines praise as all of the things that we do every Sunday morning. So whether it's uh, praying together or singing together or hearing the scriptures read together or listening to God's word explained and applied, all of these things are praise. 
Even the announcements, the, the announcements are, are ways that we can gather together. Are there updates on the ways that God is working? All of these things are part of worship. They're all part of praise. But I think for some of us, based on maybe it's temperaments, maybe it's vocal giftings, uh, praising God like the psalmist in Psalm 47 is calling us to can be a little bit more challenging. And so I want us to think about uh, this, this call to praise, this command of praise, primarily in two ways. The first of which is, how are we to praise? So what is Psalm 47 telling us? What are we actually supposed to do? Uh, and as I was reading and studying for this, there's a, a, a pastor from the 17 and 1800s, he kind of overlapped there, uh, that writing on Psalm 47, he identified seven different ways specifically that were called to praise God from this psalm. Three of his were just different ways of clapping. Well, that's more thorough than I'm going to be this morning. So I'm going to simplify it down and just say there's three primary ways that we are commanded to praise God from Psalm 47. The first of those is that we are commanded to praise God joyfully. That's the first thing we're told to do right there in verse one. Clap our hands, shout to God loud songs of joy. So none of that sounds like melancholy, frowny-faced worship. Clapping isn't uh, just like a mindless exercise. It's not just keeping the beat or something along those lines, but it's an actively joyful part of praising God. So if you're a sports fan, you, you've probably experienced some sort of overwhelming joy that leads you into clapping. I am from Atlanta. I grew up a Braves fan. One of the high days in the Atlanta Braves liturgy is October 14th, 1992. Game seven, National League Championship Series. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. Runners on second and third. There's a single into left field. Sid Bream, the catcher, is on second base. Slow as can be, but he comes around. He slides safely into home. No one in the stands had to be told, now is the time to stand up and clap. There wasn't a explanation of this is the time that we give praise. And see, that's for a baseball game that if I had to guess, 95% of you have no idea what I'm talking about. No idea who those names are. They don't know who Sid Bream is. How much more should we praise our God with joy, who's the God of the universe, who is eternal and has worked throughout all of human history and continues to work today? Why is it that we are not naturally inclined to praise our God the same way that we're inclined to praise so many other things? We, we praise our families, we praise our kids, our parents, we praise our friends. How, how much more should we joyfully praise God? Second, we are to praise God vocally. Look at the language of the psalm. Shout and sing loudly. So we don't praise God rightly by hiding our praise or by shying away from praising God. Uh, maybe you've heard the old quote, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. See, I, I think that, that that saying is trying to say you should live, you, you should walk the way that you're talking. You should live in a way that is matching up with the things you're saying. And that's a helpful corrective, but I think it misses a little bit of the point. Because even though it is important that we walk rightly before God, this psalm and I think all of the Bible tell us repeatedly that God is pleased that he hears our praise. He wants us to shout with joy about what he has done, about his love and care for us. 
And so we're, we're called to do this vocally, and we're called to do it together. And we, we, we praise God together. Third, we are called to praise God frequently. Five times in this psalm, you see the phrase, sing praises. So just a sort of basic, how do you read the Bible well? If you see the same phrase five times in the course of two verses, that means that phrase is very, very important. They're trying to emphasize with repetition, we are uh, being a member of the kingdom of God. It is critical that you are singing praises to your God. So I think that means singing uh, together what we do in the service. I think that just generally means all of our lives are part of this praising God through song. Deuteronomy 6 uh, talking about how we are supposed to teach God to others, says that you teach God when you're at home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I think one of the primary ways we see the Bible teaching is through song. And so I don't think it's too much of a leap to say a basic application of Deuteronomy 6 is we should be singing God's praises, whether we're at home or walking by the way, whether we're in the car, we're with friends, we should be reminding ourselves and others of the goodness of God. I think that's what Psalm 47 is getting after. We, we are called to frequent, vocal, joyful meditation on God's promises. But that is not easy for all of us to do. I think there's a number of things that get in the way of us praising God as he has called us to praise him. The first obstacle is sin. And I mean sin very individually. I think my own sin causes me to fail in praising God. So sin makes us feel guilty. It can make us feel like hypocrites. Sin draws our love and affection away from God and to that other thing. So if I'm struggling with greed, it's really hard for me to sing and praise God who is my treasure. If I'm struggling with, with personal holiness, whether that be lust or pride or anger or selfishness or, or whatever way uh, that, is, that is most particularly a vice to you, it's really hard to sing praises to a holy and a just God. But it's not just sin that makes praise difficult. I think there's also distractions. And distractions sometimes might be sinful, but not always. Sometimes we're distracted by good things or other important things. But it's easy for us to let our minds wander when we sing or while we're listening to preaching. It's easy to think about other good and important things and not be focused on praising God. This is a life that is filled with distractions. And so it takes work. It takes discipline to be able to do this well. I think a third obstacle is just fear of man. I think, uh, you know, probably one that hits most of us most significantly when we're singing together is I don't really want to sing that loudly because I, I don't want other people to hear my voice or I'm not quite as talented as that other person. Uh, or maybe it's that person is more expressive than I'm comfortable with or that person is not as expressive as they should be. And we just start looking around the room instead of praising God. See, the Bible makes it pretty clear that our praise has a primary audience of one. It's God who we're praising. So we want to try to work through these the sins in our lives and the, the distractions in our lives and the fear of man that keeps us from praising him authentically. 
And if one of those obstacles isn't the one that's the biggest for you, then think about it in your own life. What is it that stands in the way of authentic praise for you? I think there are things, and I think that there were things for the psalmist, which is why the enthronement psalms have the structure they do. We're called to praise. That's great. We believe it's true. We're commanded to do it. But it's hard for us to do it. And so we need good reasons to praise God. So that's the structure of the psalm, the structure of the sermon. Point number two, what are the causes for praise? Now, the first of these, and I think the most obvious from the psalm, is that God is the king. He is the king, not just over Israel, but according to verse two, he is the king over all the earth. Everything is in his dominion. And the fact that he is the king demands that we pay homage and respect and reverence to him. But just being the king does not make God worthy of praise. See, praise, if you remember the definition, was warm approval. So what is it about God that should make us warm towards him? Well, the psalmist tells us the same in verse Two. He doesn't just say that God is the king. He says he's the great king. The most high is not a tyrant. He rules and he reigns. Verse 8 depicts him as seated on his holy throne. But see, that supreme authority is not good in and of itself. If you've had a government class, then you've heard the phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But see, that phrase is based on an understanding, the premise that all people themselves are corrupt. But that's not true of God. God is supremely powerful and at the exact same time, completely good. No stain of sin, no trace of sin in anything that God does. So for the gospel to be good news, it requires that the king that we are serving himself be good and I think that we can rest confidently knowing that our king is good. But that does raise an interesting point because right before uh, the psalmist says that he is the great king, it says that he is most to be feared. The King James Version translates that as the Lord most high is terrible. But if God is great, why are we called to fear him? What does that mean? So I, I've wrestled with this idea of fearing God a lot. When I was in college, there would be a lot of guys who would ask me, what does it mean to fear God? And I probably always gave them a, a lackluster answer. One commentator defined it this way. I think it's very helpful. Fear of God is a relationship of humble awareness of absolute dependence on God's merciful and sustaining power. So fear of God is recognizing we are in relationship with the sovereign God and that we are not the sovereign God, and that that ought to humble us. That's what fear of God is. Other translations choose to translate that Hebrew as uh, God is awesome, or God is awe-inspiring, meaning if he is so much greater than anything that we can even uh, imagine in our minds, then as we look at him, it ought to produce in us humility. We stand in awe. We, we consider God's glory, and we consider our dependence. That's what it means to fear God. I think a helpful illustration of this is in Chronicles of Narnia, uh, when the kids are here, they hear that Aslan is on the move, and the first time they hear that he is a lion, 
they're afraid. And so they say, well, I mean, is a lion, is, is he safe? And that wise theologian, Mr. Beaver, says, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Meaning God's incredible power and authority shouldn't be handled flippantly. We, we don't approach God like we relate to our buddies and just our friends. We, we don't relate to God like he's the, the old man upstairs. No, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He demands our reverence and he's good. So we don't cower away from him. See, we see this balance of power and mercy most perfectly in the person of Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's literally the anointed king. And he doesn't only reign, but he stands in the place of his people. He dies on the cross to take their sins. As he is led to the cross, he's given purple clothes. He's adorned in purple. He's given a scepter. He's given a crown of thorns, and then he is crucified. He is the sovereign king, and at the same time, he is the servant of all. He is the ruler over all, and he is the ransom for our sins, the one who died in our place so that we could be made heirs in his kingdom. Have you thought about that? That in Christ, we are made sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. If we're God's sons and daughters, if the high king over all things is our father, how should that affect the way that we relate to him and how we pray to him, how you approach him and speak to him and about him? And if you're not a Christian, have you considered that God's goodness is seen just as clearly in his mercy as it is in his justice? Exodus chapter 34 says that it is according to God's goodness that he keeps steadfast love and forgives sins. And at the same time, it's his goodness that is why he will by no means clear the guilty. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you haven't bent the knee to the King Most High, then let this psalm be your invitation. Relinquish the the authority that you are trying to find in other things or in yourself and submit to God. It's only in him that we will realize how praise is meant to be used. It's why we're here and we're singing songs of joy because God is the king. So that's cause one of why we praise God. Cause two, God subdues. Look at verse three with me. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. Now, at first blush, that might sound like really harsh language, that God subdues his enemies under his feet. But think about what's happening behind that verse. When God subdues people, he's not doing it just to crush them into the ground so that Israel can reign on top of a pile of rubble. Israel is God's chosen nation, but the purpose for which they are chosen is that through Israel, God will bring about the Savior of the world. 
So God subdues Egypt to deliver Israel out of slavery. God subdues numerous nations as they are entering into the promised land. God subdues the Philistines so that David can ascend and sit on the throne. None of this is God flexing his muscle for the sake of show. Every subdued nation is ensuring that Jesus Christ will come, he will die for their sins, and he's dying for the sins of the very nations who have opposed God all along. The psalmist is saying, God subduing the nations is a call to praise. I think that's what verse 7 is getting at. God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. If God is king, his dominion covers everything, and that means we honor the king. The specific way we're given to honor the king is with a psalm. And here's what we miss from not knowing how to read or speak in Hebrew. The word that's translated psalm in verse, uh, in verse 7 of, of Psalm 47 is maskil, M-A-S-K-I-L. Maybe in your Bible reading you've seen that word before, uh, it's the superscript or kind of the title at the top of a handful of psalms throughout the book of Psalms, uh, particularly this summer, Psalm 42, 44, and 45 all have maskil as the superscript, Psalms of the Sons of Korah, a maskil. Uh, all of the psalms that are listed in that way, all of them, the purpose is to give wisdom about God. The, the thought is you should read this psalm to grow wise in who God is, what he's done. I think the purpose of, of verse 7 is saying we don't want, God, God is not pleased with us singing to him mindlessly. He wants us to sing thoughtfully, engaged with what we are singing. Uh, Paul picks up the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. He says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That's why we sing what we sing at Christ's covenant. That's why we preach the way that we preach and teach the way that we teach at Christ's covenant church. We want you to be built up and growing in the knowledge of God so that you can sing and worship wisely. We don't want to sing songs that just repeat snappy sounding phrases, but that don't really teach us true things about who God is. When you think about God subduing the nations, his authority over them, and how he has worked through human history, how does that strengthen you or fortify you when crisis comes? How does considering that God orders all things and all, always has, how does that comfort us when, when the chaos of life is sort of coming in on us, whether that's uh, geopolitical, global threats, or that's the challenges of parenthood. H how do we think about God, and how does that provide us with comfort? We are to praise God because he is king, because he subdues, and then last, because God protects. We'll see this in verses 4 and 9. So first, look at verse 4 with me. He, that is God, chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. I think one of the clearest things this verse teaches is that God has a chosen people and that he cares for them in a unique way. While it's true that uh, God is good and he's the king over all of the earth, he is uniquely in relationship with his people. 
That's the language this psalm uses. God chose our heritage. And we've already talked about how God is sovereignly protecting people throughout the various things that happen, the events of the Old Testament. But here, we see that God's sovereign protection also is about preserving his people. And we see that it's his pleasure to do so. It's not just subduing nations and enemies. It says that he does this for the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God, the one who is in the heavens and who does all that he pleases, is pleased to protect the people he loves. Is that a comfort to you? I think if you're a Christian, it ought to be a comfort. God who knows everything, who is omniscient, and that God who is all-knowing has sovereignly and providentially worked out all things. He is the one who knows all things, which means he's, he is making choices on behalf of those that he loves and that we can rest assured that whatever choices he has made for us, those are the choices that are best for us, that those are the things that bring us best into glory. So that means that Christian contentment is not saying everything I have is great. I'm good right here. Christian contentment is recognizing there are things that I do, that I, that I want to do, that I want to have. There, there's times where the season of life I'm in, I think, man, I wish I was in a different season of life. But Christian contentment says that I am confident that whatever I have is what God knows that I need. And whatever I don't have is whatever God knows I don't need. Jen Wilkin says, you have what you have because of the goodness of God. Do you believe that? Do you find it easy or difficult to trust in God's care? See, the pride of Jacob in this verse, they didn't always find it very easy. Jacob was, of course, given a new name in Genesis 32. God renames him Israel, which literally means wrestles with God. Ever since that, God's people have wrestled against him all the time. We wrestle, we wrestle to trust in God. We wrestle to believe that he's actually working for our good. We wrestle to be content. But this psalm is meant as an encouragement. God loves you and he will protect you and he will keep you from all manner of dangers and pitfalls that we can fall into in this life. That's what we see about God's protection in verse four. But look also at verse nine. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Both verses eight and nine, I think, give us a picture of future glory. Verse nine says that the princes gather as the people of God. It does not say they gather with the people of God. See, I don't think this is a vision of uh, God is seated on the throne and his enemies come and his friends come and this is kind of two different camps that he's dealing with. It says they gather as the people of God. All of the rulers, all the princes, who I think are representative of all of the people from their nations, gather together before the holy throne. And so what we're seeing is those who once opposed God are now drawing near as God's people. This is really the reversal of the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the people gather themselves together against God. They want to build a tower so they can make a name for themselves and so that they can protect themselves. And the result of that quest is that they're spread out and dispersed over all the face of the earth. 
They believed in a false gospel. I can protect, I can save myself. Psalm 47 takes that idea and turns it on its head as the nations gather before God's throne. And, and just think about for a second what a shield is, what it means that all the shields belong to God. Most obviously, this is a defensive weapon. A shield would have protected, uh, as this was written, probably mostly against arrows and swords. Uh, I think about uh, like the Marvel comics and movies. Uh, the agency specifically intended to protect Earth from threats both on this planet and extraterrestrial is literally called shield. The thought is, Tony Stark, Iron Man, says that it's to put a suit of armor around the world. That's the point of shield. That's what we want, to be protected from any and every danger. The problem is, shield is not that good. The Avengers can't protect everybody. The shields in the psalmist time could not protect us from every danger. But that's not how God works. If you remember back in Psalm 46, Uh, Towards the end of that psalm, it says that God is the one who breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire, and he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, meaning there was no offensive threat against God. He thwarted every other opponent. And in Psalm 47, we see that God is also the one who ultimately protects his people. But see, shields also served another purpose. They distinguished which army different soldiers belonged to. So shields would have been painted a certain color or they would have had a coat of arms or a crest on them so that we would know this soldier belongs to this people. And even within uh, an army, they would have shapes that would be different. So the shields themselves would be shaped differently so that I could know not only is he in this army, but he's in this branch of this part of the military. But here in the anti-Babel, there is no more differentiation. All of the shields from every nation, every one of them, they all belong to God. And the final phrase of the psalm is the answer to chapter 46, verse 10. That verse, be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And here we see that he is highly exalted. Let's pray just real quick. Father, we pray for whatever that, uh, that person is going to care for or help. Lord, we pray that you would be there and merciful on them. We trust in you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We see that God is highly exalted. The, the God most high is exalted. He is lifted up and praised. And that's true now in the church. He is highly exalted here among us. We sing his praises loudly but it will be true in all the nations that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation that will come and bow before his throne and sing his praises. That will be true in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's our responsibility then to be a part of praising him now. Beloved, we who are in Christ belong to God. He is our king. He's, it's our deliverer. He's our protector. We belong to him. And because of that, all of our lives are to be lived in a way that joyfully praises God. Vocally and frequently and joyfully, we are praising our God. We ought to be the people in the world who are the happiest. And not happiest like we're always smiling and skipping around, but happiest knowing whatever suffering we walk through, that God is exalted and that he is reigning, and that we can rest in him and trust in him and walk through that suffering with him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
when you look at the language of this psalm and the king that is described here, does that not sound like a king that you wish existed? Like, if there was a king like this, he would be worthy of my allegiance. See, if the Bible is true, and, and I believe that it is true, then God isn't a king like he's a, a distant authority who doesn't really have any bearing on my individual day-to-day life. The, the God of the Bible, the king of the scriptures, is a God who is intimately involved with the lives of his people. He watches over to them and he protects them. Wouldn't you want to live in a world where the greatest power and authority loved you and worked on your behalf and cared for you and was utterly trustworthy and reliable and dependable? We don't have any earthly relationships with that much trust, not any one, but that's who God is, completely trustworthy, completely loving. And in this psalm and and in various other places throughout the scriptures, he extends an invitation to you into his kingdom. You receive that invitation by trusting in Christ and by walking and living for his glory. And that's the the picture that this psalm gives us of, of a king on the throne who delivers his people and subdues his opponents and protects his people, who's calling us to praise him and We're going to close today with a song that I think will probably feel very out of place in July. As I was reading this psalm all week long, and as I was talking with Jeremy about what songs we would sing on Sunday, uh, only one song kept coming to my mind. Uh, So as I was sort of reflecting on and considering the nature that, that God is the king, he's the one who rules over the earth, and that we're called then to praise him with joy, I just kept coming back to Joy to the World. Obviously, that's a Christmas song. Uh, And I think it's true to to see it as a song that we sing at Christmas. It is in every way Christological. It speaks about Christ as our King. But originally, that song was just written as a, a sort of summary of Psalm 98. It's just a sort of a Christological looking forward. If Psalm 98 was Jesus, this is what it would sound like. And Beyond that, we see in Luke 2, the angels sort of take up the same song. And so even though we typically think about singing this song at Christmas, today I want us to sing it thoughtfully, wisely. When you sing the words of joy to the world, think about what it means that Christ has come to bring joy to all the world, that he is the king of earth, that our savior reigns, and that he rules with mercy and grace, he, or he rules the world with truth and grace. Sorry, I got the lyrics wrong. So we're going to close with that song, but uh, just for a second, before we do that, I want to take a moment and uh, give you guys a moment to, to just pray and ask God that you would give, he would give you grace as you trust in him. Uh, I want you to consider what it means to fear this great king. What, what does that actually mean for me? Am I doing that? And then thank God for his loving care, for his his providential ordering of all human history. It's because of all of the nations that have been subdued, because Christ has come and died for your sins, because he is alive so that we can live in him. That's why we're here right now. We we have this because God has sovereignly and providentially ordered it for us to be in this specific room in this specific time. So thank God for that. And then I will pray in just a moment to close.
Our Father, we are so thankful that we can come and pray to you and call you Father, that that you have brought us into the kingdom. Those who are here and have trusted in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters. Because of that, we don't have to cower away from you, not to run and hide when we come into your presence, but we can boldly walk into the throne room and and bow before you and ask you to, to protect us and help us care for us. We're grateful for your word and for psalms like this one that teach us what it means to praise you. And God, we pray that you would give us great joy in, in singing your praises. You would, you would remove these obstacles that, that hinder us and help us to worship you as you would see fit. We want to be people who praise you and who are known in the world and the community for being people who praise you. We, we trust that that comes from you uh, filling us with your spirit and empowering us to walk rightly before you. So we pray you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.